Hey everyone, I am back with another episode of Real Sports Talk by Naraj on this Wednesday, June 9. Want to recap the NBA playoff action that we saw yesterday, as well as get into some other uh, really nice stories as well around the sports world. Um, so, to kick things off, um, the Philadelphia 76ers were able to win game two and tie the series up. You know, coming into this series, obviously Philadelphia was obviously monitoring the health of Joel Embiid and his knee. Um, he definitely talked about being much better and coming after uh, it on the offensive side of the ball in game two against the Atlanta Hawks. And Embiid definitely did that, um, you know, in a big way. The Sixers won 118 to 102 was the final score of this game. Uh, the defensive energy and execution was great uh, from the end of the third quarter of this game to the early part of the fourth quarter. And that's where Philadelphia really took control of this game and tied up the series. You know, Embiid having 40 points um, was aggressive in getting his shots, getting to the free throw line, uh, not letting the Atlanta Hawks kind of keep coming at them, you know, because early on it seemed like the Hawks were kind of getting to their spots and kind of, you know, forcing some misses here and there, um, but Embiid kept the focus, kept the energy, um, and he brought it all game long, especially on the defensive end where he did have a sequence where, you know, Capello did, did dunk over him, but he got him right back, and that's kind of what you want to see from Joel Embiid. Uh, on a consistent basis going forward in this series. Seth Curry had 21 points, Tobias here had 22. Um, but the more impressive thing about game two was seeing the performance of Shake Milton. Um, you know, and that is his first name, Shake Milton. Um, but, uh, you know, he's someone who I really thought um, was, was going to be, you know, a big part of the Philadelphia 76ers' plans uh, early on in the regular season. Obviously, with the addition of Seth Curry and a couple of changes to the lineups, obviously he didn't get much playing time early on, but he came in and he provided a spark. You know, he had that big three at the end of the third quarter on a buzzer, you know, on the buzzer period there, the third quarter, and he hit some really good shots. He put up 14 points, I think, overall, getting to the basket. Sixers went on a big run in the fourth quarter early on with him playing, so... He provides a spark, and as I mentioned, one of the keys for the Sixers in this series comes down to their bench being being much better and playing much better to win. And that's what Milton did yesterday for the Philadelphia 76ers, providing a, a boost off the bench. You know, Dwight Howard had some nice buckets, some nice dunks, you know, um, in the game. And you just saw that the ball movement was there, the execution was there. Um, so, you know, the Sixers were able to really do a good job defensively. They got active. They forced Atlanta into 18 turnovers. They forced Atlanta into 18 turnovers. They didn't let Trey Young beat them too much from the outside. Um, they really forced them inside a lot. And he definitely turned the ball over quite a few times as well. So, you know, that was a huge thing for the Sixers in the game, too. And plus, on the fast break, Sixers were just much better than the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, particularly uh, in the early part of this game. The Atlanta Hawks seem to have played pretty well up to the first half. 
they had played well into the third quarter, where things really turned was the end of the third quarter and start of the fourth quarter. Nate McMillan, great coach, young coach, who's been able to do really a good job with Atlanta, but you know, not putting in Trey Young earlier in that fourth quarter kind of doomed their chances. Um, he should have been putting in a little bit earlier, um, you know, giving him rest. You understand that, but they should have put in Trey Young early on in that fourth quarter of game two. I think that was a, a blunder by McMillan. Not, you know, saying that he's a bad coach or anything, but I think that in terms of adjustments, you know, should have put in Trey Young a little bit earlier in the fourth quarter than, than you originally did. Um, but then again, Atlanta played pretty well offensively. I mean, everybody did score relatively well, although John Collins not scoring as much that cannot happen in game game three. John Collins has to be on point. You know, you got to see him look for his shot and get to the hole. Um, you know, Hooter, Kevin Hooter and, you know, DeAndre Hunter and, you know, Gallinari, obviously they were able to score decently, um, but you got to see Capella and, and John Collins be much better, especially inside, um, Obviously, Joel Embiid is doing a good job of just kind of reacting and reading the defense. Um, but those two need to kind of find their groove a little bit here and there uh, to offset what, what Embiid is doing in the inside. You know, that is a huge thing for the Atlanta Hawks to focus on is that, you know, not only do they allow a lot of Embiid inside, um, but they didn't do a job of defending and closing out. So the Sixers did, for the most part, the Atlanta Hawks did not. And so Atlanta kind of lost their offensive rhythm in that fourth quarter. They couldn't buy a shot. And by the time they did start getting some shots up, you know, by then Philadelphia was able to kind of hold on with a couple of, you know, key buckets. Ben Simmons not scoring much, um, but defensively he had an impact, you know, just being able to kind of alter certain angles, certain shots. Uh, but, you know, Ben Simmons is going to have to do much more, I think. Um, as well as the Philadelphia bench, but you know Ben Simmons is capable of doing much better than he did yesterday. So I think that would be a key um, for him on the road, especially against Atlanta. They may try to force Ben Simmons to shoot the ball, you know, a lot more in Game Three. So I think Ben Simmons has to stay ready and, and prepared for the uh, potential opportunity where if Atlanta does try to double team and be more aggressively in Game Three. You know, Trey Young is going to try to... Obviously, Atlanta is going to try to stay much better in terms of defending the perimeter shooting. But if Ben Simmons gets the ball in his hands, he's got to attack and make it happen. And I think that will come up in Game 3. I think you'll see Atlanta try to force Ben Simmons to shoot some shots. And I think that will be an interesting strategy to see if that works out or not. Um, but 1-1 heading to Atlanta promises to be a good series. And I still think that Embiid is due for even some more monster games down the rest of the, rest of the series. Um, but we're going to find out a lot, lot about Trey Young and this Hawks team that, you know, they seem to have a lot of confidence. They're playing at a high level. Um, but Philadelphia has been able to do really, really showed up in game two and defended well in some really key sequences. And so, you know, the physicality that the Sixers did play with in this game, I, I really want to see how Atlanta responds to that in game three. And whether they're up for the up for their challenge, uh, with Embiid coming at them and the kind of shooting that that Philadelphia did put forward, you know they gotta keep it going, keep it going in Atlanta, 
uh, find a way find a way to split a game or two with Atlanta there um, so that you have a game five on, on your home court tied to two and that would be the best bet for the Philadelphia 76ers to remain to remain and have a competitive edge in this series the other game that took place last night uh, was a game one of the LA Clippers and the Utah Jazz squaring off uh, and the Utah Jazz were able to hold off the Clippers for a 122 or sorry 112 to 109 victory uh, Rudy Gobert had the block on the game tying attempt a three attempt by I think Marcus Morris it was um, that final possession for the Clippers not the kind of possession that I think they could have had uh, you know you wish that Paul George or Kawhi Leonard would have tried to make a shot work but give the Utah Jazz credit uh, for kind of getting up in Paul George and Kawhi Leonard's faces on those on that game time three attempt kind of forced the pass to each other and then to Marcus Morris who obviously sidestepped but could not get past Gobert's reach and he blocked the shot and it was over by the time uh, that he had a shot at it so the Utah Jazz I mean they came out a little bit flat in this game you know they didn't shoot well offensively on the first half they were kind of cold from the floor um, Clippers kind of took advantage of that they kind of had their way um, getting some notable contributions from Luke Kennard who all of a sudden is getting minutes now because he was on the bench um, you know Tyron Luke coming now and kind of revealing his little bit of his wild cards now because Luke Kennard was given a decent amount of money in this offseason and I think that people reminded people may have reminded Tyron Lue in, in that Dallas series probably to bring him in he had a nice showing last night um, Reggie Jackson kind of quiet game had some foul trouble he did foul out actually in this game you know he didn't have it too much going to the point where he could make a difference but the Jazz just played much better in the second half they had more good shots more better execution uh, you know Rudy Gobert and Davin Mitchell put you know the finishing touches on this game but Mitchell had 45 points. He started slow, got it going as the game went on. Really, really took it on to the Clippers. Whoever was, whoever was guarding him, he took it on um, and kept doing it uh, in a way in which they, you know he kept the Utah Jazz in front. Got some quality shots, some quality looks. Uh, Bogdanovich had 18 points overall. Uh, but big thing that Utah Jazz did in the second half, they were able to kind of limit the Clippers' um, ball passing. You know, Kawhi Leonard uh, wasn't able to. The, 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 Kawhi Leonard wasn't able to go off for like 30 plus points in this game. You know what the Utah Jazz did was kind of force him to be a decision maker to pass the ball out, and they trapped him pretty well in some instances. But they, what they really did well was that even if they trapped Kawhi Leonard in the paint or as he was trying to drive. You know, they were able to close out. They were able to run and close out on the shooters. Uh, you, know, Paul, you know, Paul George and Marcus Morris. They were able to close out much better um, than we've seen the Mavericks do in this postseason. And so, you know, they kind of closed out well. You saw guys get after, get the rebounds, get extra possessions. So, you know give them credit give them credit um because they really uh played a really good game 
Um, and Bogdanovich had some huge threes in this game. Uh, you know, it was all around complete effort by the Utah Jazz. They were able to lock in, slow the game down. You know, Clippers missed some easy shots, and they were able to win uh, doing it that way. As for the Clippers, what really went wrong for them in Game One? Uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard obviously had 23 points, which you know relatively is decent for him. Obviously, obviously he's capable of doing much more offensively. Um, but you know, this thing really came down to Paul George and you know the kind of play of Paul George and the rest of the supporting cast. You know, Paul George um, is a really solid player. And I think that, you know, we saw him have his moments here and there in the Dallas series where he looked really, relatively, really good and others looked really, really bad. And, you know, you have Dominic Mitchell who's dropping shots all over the place on, 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 on you. You know, dropping shots on you, you know, from time to time <laughs> in that game. And Paul George, even though he finished with 20 points, and he had four, uh, he was he shot four of 17 from the floor. Um, you know, three of eight, I think, um, from the three-point line. So, you know, Paul George is much better than this. Uh, obviously, everyone's going to try to focus on what he did in the fourth quarter because uh, he he did score most of the points in the fourth quarter. But Paul George has to be much better. Uh, he's got to find his spot and. That's going to come down to him kind of being more aggressive. Obviously, Rudy Gobert being in the paint there affected his decision-making. But Paul George can't have that kind of performance where he's missing some shots, missing threes. He's got to be able to hit some better efficient shots, you know, try to drive and make good baskets. I think that he really struggled and wasn't as efficient enough last night. I think he made a lot of shots that he could have made. But some were bad, some were contested, some were just not the right spots. So I think he needs to be much better. And look, the physicality of this series is going to be back and forth. I think both teams exhibited that really, really well in Game 1. Um, but Paul George has got to find a way to play much better early on. And B, obviously, whatever he did in the fourth quarter, that was fine, which was great. But he's got to be more effective with Kawhi Leonard on the court. Um, these two have to find ways to get each other going a lot more. And they've done that throughout the regular season to an extent. You saw it in the Dallas series quite a bit. Uh, but I think for Kawhi Leonard, obviously his game is to score, score, score. And he'll make the he'll make the passes. He'll make the pass. But I think he needs to find a way to get Paul George going. Or rather, Paul George needs to find a way to kind of shake all the noise that... <laughs> he's been getting lately about just not being able to perform as well when the stakes are high you know so he's got to find a way to rise up and be a star be a player that can you know help Kawhi Leonard uh, you know get it done you know Kawhi Leonard is going to be able to drop 30 40 maybe in this series at some point it's about what does Paul George do what does you know Reggie Jackson do what does Marcus Morris do um and, you know, we'll continue to see Rondo and Beverly in different situations. But this comes down to how well do you, you know, adjust. You know, what does Tyron Lue do to make it easier uh, for his shooters 
uh, to get baskets, you know. How are you going to be able to do that in a way in which you're able to get productive minutes from everybody and be able to kind of out-duel and out-manage how the Utah Jazz are doing it right now. I think that is the biggest key for the Clippers. Um, I do have the Utah Jazz winning this series, and I think there will be much more close games than usual in this series. Um, but it comes down to execution. And like I said, the duel of, of Mitchell and Gobert um, is going to be so key in this series. Jordan Clarkson, obviously, is a huge X factor. And Mike Conley, when he gets back for game game two, hopefully, that will be another thing that the Clips that the, uh, have to deal with. So... You know, the return of Mike Conley and how the Clippers kind of adjust. If the Clippers are able to get back uh, Serge Ibaka, things could be very, very interesting in this series. So, those are some names to watch out for. Mike Conley, Serge Ibaka, I mean, they may end up being, um, you know, some X factors along with the ones that I have mentioned for this series. this next segment I want to talk about a UFC fighter that has been really good for a long time and he's been you know really looking for that title opportunity for a while um, as a lot of things have obviously changed throughout the throughout this past year and I mean he's a solid fighter that was kind of building momentum um, and unfortunately just due to some of the COVID testing and procedures and protocols and a lot of things got kind of got pushed and pushed for this athlete but he continues to uh you know be bold and be confident in himself and getting the right opportunity and he will get his shot coming up this weekend and so who i'm referring to is leon edwards who is expected to take on nate diaz um at ufc 263 in bendel arizona this weekend and this is a fight that, um, you know, Leon Edwards has been looking to for for a long time. You know, he has been working his way back into being more of a competitive and active fighter than his history, um, you know, prior to this. So, you know, it comes down to a couple of things for Leon Edwards. Obviously, he's much younger than Nate Diaz. Um, he's obviously looking to kind of show his dominant form that he's had. Um, you know, he's put together a nice, impressive win streak. I think about two or three fights. Um, and, you know, in his background, you know, he's a British Jamaican professional, you know, mixed martial artist. Um, has been waiting, as I mentioned, for a long time while for a title shot and it's been unfortunate he hasn't hasn't got one since now um because you know prior to this he was you know competing uh, very very well and then you know a couple of fights were scheduled to happen but COVID pushed it back and it kind of turned into a couple of tough things for all the fighters involved so they had to really take precautions and kind of replan things going forward so you know looking at Leon Edwards he started you know training and getting into 
into UFC fight the age of 16. Um, you know, has been a, been a competitor since 2011 in the welterweight division. Um, and, I mean, his story is incredible, you know, and very significant. You know, he overcame a lifestyle early on that was very unsafe, was involved in a lot of dangerous activities. Um, and, you know, he was doing some things that he shouldn't have been doing at an early age. Um, but what really got, got him on track was his parents and his mother who um, you know, got him off it, made him join an MMA club where he could, like, you know, focus his energy on making a, you know, making a good living, a, a good living and having a good career, focusing on something more, much more better. And so, you know, he got involved into fighting and MMA. And ever since then, he's been kind of working his way up. Uh, throughout the ranks, competing against some really good fighters, um, some notable ones that were in, in, the, in the division class, you know, like Kamaru Usman, you know, you know Donald Cherone, Rafael Den Anojos was his last fight. You know, now he did lose to Kamaru Usman, but since then he was able to really put together impressive victories, and his last one came against, um, you know, Rafael Den Anojos. And so, I mean, looking at his records, it's very impressive what he's been able to do uh, at his age. You know, 18, 3, and 1, uh, 9 wins by decision. And he's been really looking to kind of get to that stardom level, to get that, um, get that recognition that he's been looking for. And look, a lot of fighters work on their crafts and, you know, just want to go out there and compete. And for him, I think that he's just looking to really be the best person that he can be and be a, a great fighter and get that title up, title that he's been long looking for uh, throughout his career. You know, he may have won a bunch of fights and, you know, obviously throughout all these fights he's kind of learned more about himself and his fighting style, but now he wants to kind of rise to that level that Nate Diaz once used to be at and Nate Diaz still has that in him. You know, even though Nate Diaz is still older, he's been able to hold his own against some of the younger fighters that come, come, into, come into the MMA and UFC division. Um, so, you know, Nate Diaz is obviously a really good uh, competitor still to this age. Um, and, you know, he is going to put on a good show no matter what. So, I think that it's going to be very exciting to see what he does, you know, what um, you know, Leon Burns does against Nate Diaz. Like I said, prior to this, he was supposed to fight, like, you know, Tyron Woodley and a couple of other, um, you know, fighters, but it you know, never came to fruition. Uh, but now, you know, he's all set on taking on Nate Diaz, and these two are incredible in their own unique ways. Uh, I think that the kind of career that Leon Edwards has had, I mean, it's remarkable, it's unique. And he's just trying to move up now and kind of get into those main title fights, which will obviously help him a lot. Help him a lot in terms of, uh, you know, kind of raising his his name, his his brand, his abilities. You know, I think it's going to be really solid, uh, a really solid fight that we'll see this weekend uh, between these two fighters. And you know, obviously. 
Valium through COVID and getting tested for it um, before like the pandemic or during the pandemic when he was having these fights arranged. You know, he's obviously learned a lot about how to take care of himself, how to use his downtime. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, Leon Edwards is motivated, he's got a chip on his shoulder. He's kind of seen the success that, you know, Francis Naganu has had, you know, the kind of success um, that we're seeing from a lot of MMA athletes who have been in some fights recently. And I think that Leon Edwards is ready, ready to make a name for himself this weekend. And I think that if he were to beat Nate Diaz this weekend, I think it would go a long way for him to getting more opportunities and being on that kind of national level uh, or top two, top one fighter possibly in the division itself. So it's going to be exciting to see how he does going forward and I hope that he continues to enjoy the journey, continue to kind of work and be competitive as possible. Um, because there was a period of time where he was, was kind of inactive for a while, but he came back and really stood out. So you got to stay on the right track and continue to like rise up. And definitely this fight will be a huge test for him. And excited to see how he responds to that challenge and how he comes out of it. So I want to finish up talking about um, one more uh, young athlete who uh, completed her NCCA career at the women um, college softball, uh, you know, World Series, and that is um, DC Alexander. You know, she had an incredible run uh, with James Madison in the women's college World Series this year. And, you know, looking at the career that she's had, it was really stellar in a lot of ways. And, you know, a very nice moment she had this weekend. Even though her team got eliminated, the kind of work that she put in throughout the season um, to get to, the, to lead her team to this point, it was truly inspirational. A lot of people around the sports world were just all of her talents. And, you know, of course, most people do not know. I mean, most people don't really probably follow softball as much, but it's a sport that continues to deliver on a consistent basis and be exciting for a lot of people who do tune into it. And for anybody who's watched Odyssey Alexander, uh, they know more about it uh, because they were obviously witnessing it, you know, right there in the audience and the fans are obviously appreciating that. You know, but she's someone who really put forth a tremendous mentality and effort throughout the entire series, leading James Madison, a team that was unranked, to an improbable run during this, uh, you know, college, you know, world series here. You know, she wasn't heavily recruited in high school. Obviously, uh, something to do that was obviously, you know, being an African black pitcher. You know, just trying to like show that she could be on the same level as many other her, her counterparts in the sport and you know these things kind of happen and change throughout the sport where you know recruitment and all that really varies sometimes recruitment just don't want to go and pick something that they're not aware of or they don't know but you know DC Alexander she kind of used that as motivation thinking that you know, there were a lot of recruiters that did pass on her 
you know, thinking that maybe she just needed more work or she needed more time to understand, um, you know, how to be a pro athlete and succeed at their institution. James Madison provided her with the opportunity and platform to pursue her softball dreams. Um, and she really took it on in a huge way, becoming better and better as a player throughout her years. You know, she showed up in special moments, um, pitching so well in some tight games. She always gave her team a, a chance to win. And they were able to upset some, uh, you know, top seeds along their ways. So, you know, she enjoyed that mentality and that, that, that journey where, you know, the Women's uh, College World Series is obviously a special year, you know, time for a lot of these schools that are looking to, you know, make it happen. And, you know, she had the right approach, the right mindset. I mean, some of her impressive numbers, you know, in terms of like 2.13, like earned run average, 709 strikeouts. And, you know, all throughout, I mean, she, you know, coming from Virginia, where she really worked on her skills, where she used to, uh, you know, train and throw at, you know, concrete blocks in the backyard with her, with her family and her father, I think. Um, and she just took it on another level in the World Series where, you know, she won a couple of Nobel Awards of the Year, I think, you know, College Athlete of the Year, um, in, in, in softball and she really like did a good job of having that mentality of do whatever it takes to win you know give, give it your all 100% effort and I think that that's what really won over a lot of people um, and, the, and the hearts this you know earlier this week just her her commitment to being a great pro and you know having a spectacular career with James Madison where she not only brought the school more attention but she was able to kind of grow and understand certain things and you know she always had some really noble performances uh, just enjoying the game of softball really trying to go all out to make some plays on the field to help her teammates as much as possible she was a great leader uh, and, she, and she continues to be one she, she will continue to be one wherever she does go next um, she will continue to be um, doing things at a high level because her mentality and her Mindset, you know, wanting to be great, and no matter what the sport is, you know, if you have that mentality to be great, you can do big, big things. And so I think with DC Alexander, uh, throughout her time um, as an athlete and being, you know, here in women's college softball, you know, she's made a name for herself. Made a name for herself because of the improbable run that she led her team on with her great pitching, her great mindset, as I mentioned before. But more importantly than than that. You know, she had that desire, that passion to, like, lead her team, um, no matter what the odds were, to be out there and competing. And she enjoyed the journey of, obviously, working with her teammates, her coaches, who have pushed her in the right direction. Um, and, you know, very smart and very talented. And it showed up in a lot of different ways this year um, for James Madison as they made their run. Uh, towards in the Women's College World Series and you know they may not have been able to com- you know complete that that mission that dream of being champions but they were able to you know together build a really building a winning culture there in James Madison and I'm sure she'll have 
a lot more to do, a lot more things that will be ahead of her. That'll be great. Um, but she definitely had a sensational career that, you know, she got an opportunity that no one saw coming. You know, a lot of schools might have wished now that they had recruited her much better. Uh, not just looking at, you know, her color. Um, and I'm not saying that was the main reason why they, o- they overlooked her, but, you know, she wasn't recruited heavily as much. And, you know, she took that as motivation and had a stellar career uh, with James Madison. And look what she's what she's able to do. You know, had an improbable run where, um, you know, a lot of people are talking about her. And, you know, it's just special to see her have that moment. Obviously, they work so hard throughout the season, these players, to to get, you know, on the national stage. And, you know, she showed up, was really great in what she did. Um, and she made a lot of pictures, a lot of people, a lot of people out there who are African-American and black really feel confident about, you know, going after their dreams, going after being in the sport. You know, she kind of proved that in a big-time way. And... You know, she hopes to continue to serve as a role model and inspiration for a lot of those young, younger athletes who want to play softball. And you don't have to be the highly, you know, you, you don't have to be the number one recruit, number two recruit, or the best recruit uh, to make it big in, in big, make it big in, in women's college softball. And I think that ODC Alexander proved that by going, going out all out and being able to uh, do a good job of. You know, turning, you know, embracing the challenge of, you know, taking a school, going to going to a school and kind of helping that team kind of reach potentials that they never thought they would reach. And so, James Madison is a better university, a better program because of her efforts this year, and obviously all the other players that were involved in this run to the and this run to the championship or to the to the women's college call series. So, very nice to see and overall. Uh, experience like that, I think Odyssey Alexander, her future is bright. Her future is bright, um, and I can't wait to see what she does. You know, Odyssey Alexander proved a lot um, in this run that she had uh, leading up to the Women's College World Series. That you know, you know, a, a player that was really just looking forward to just playing and leading her team, kind of you know, outdoing expectations. Being the underdog, under, being the underdog, and almost making it to the championship, um, but you know she will be celebrated and talked about for a long time uh, with James Madison um, and what their future will look like um, going ahead in softball. And who knows, maybe one day they'll be able to compete um, for the Women College World Series championship as well.